0: I'm Sarah Resnick, and I'm LaShawn Moore, and we are the hosts of The Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hello, welcome to episode 72 of The Weave Podcast. This week on the podcast, I'm talking with Linda LaBelle, a teacher, entrepreneur, author, photographer, and career fiber artist specializing in natural dyeing and weaving. In our conversation, we talk about Linda's dye garden, as well as her many trips across the world to learn, teach, and gather dye materials to share with the natural fiber community. Hey, Linda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, LaShawn. Thank you so much for having me. Can you start out by introducing yourself and telling us about your background and how you found your way into the world of natural textiles? Sure. My name is Linda LaBelle, and right now I'm
1: living in Roanoke, Virginia, but my career began a long, long time ago. Even as a child, I was interested in textiles, fabric, texture. How did they get the color on the fabric? Um, I eventually moved to New Mexico and started interacting with some local weavers and dyers and learned not only about the aspect of natural dyes for color, but also as medicinal plants. Uh, I eventually went to, uh, I studied art in Boston, I studied fine art, and then I went to um, Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising in LA to study fashion design and ended up getting my degree at FIT in New York City in textile design and weaving and I then worked in the garment industry and eventually worked as a costume designer for artists most notably uh Matthew Barney and his creme master cycle and in 2001 I opened my own business it was a retail store brick and mortar teaching studio and an e-commerce business
0: wow that's super interesting and when did you make the transition into focusing on natural dyes and fibers
1: um well, having studio room, I've always worked with natural fibers. Always, always, always. Natural mm. cotton, silk, you name it. I really never worked with polyester. I've never, uh, really worked with overlock machines. Um, mainly, you know, <laughs> work, working with wovens. Um, but the natural dyes, once I had a dedicated space, obviously, it was a lot easier to, to work with them on a larger scale than I had been doing. So part of the studio was we, we, I, or we taught, um, natural dyeing as well as low-impact dyeing with, with chemical dyes. And I had a 55-gallon indigo bag going that my students could use.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. And when you say your students could use, was this while you were teaching in workshops or did you teach uh, professionally in like a college or institution? Well, I,
1: I mean, I've taught both ways. I taught uh, in, you know natural dyeing and indigo dyeing through my studio in Williamsburg. And I also have traveled all over the world and taught uh, to various groups. And I've taught in university situations. I've taught at the University of uh, North Carolina in Charlotte to sort of start off the year for the textile students. Um, So I've taught on on many levels in many places. (laughs)
0: And you mentioned that um, you taught when you were in Williamsburg. Uh, When Mm -hmm. did you move to Virginia where you are now?
1: Well, I actually, uh, because of the 2008 recession, um, you know, I had to finally give up the business. I tried for three years to keep it going, and it was very hard to recover. The Williamsburg neighborhood was changing. It was becoming very gentrified. My customer base was moving out and changing. And uh, so I closed down the store, the studios, kept the online business going, and originally moved to Asheville, North Carolina, then Greenville, South Carolina. And now I'm in Roanoke, Virginia.
0: Wow. And can you talk about (laughs) the yarn tree?
1: sure the yarn tree was a very it was very exciting we taught all levels of um, knitting crochet beadwork embroidery paper making felting wet and dry five levels of weaving natural dyeing, low-impact dyeing, five levels of spinning, and probably some many more one-off type workshops. And I only carried natural fibers. So I was really bucking the trend. Everybody was buying their yarns from places like Lion Brand and selling polyester, polyester blends, nylon blends, whatever. And I was very adamant that my business would only sell natural fibers. So we carried some of the finest silks, alpaca, um, you know, beautiful blends. Uh, I would bring in actual whole fleeces and either send them out to be processed or I'd process them myself, and people could come in and buy the the raw fleece to spin. Um, and my dyes come from all over the world. Some of them I bring back on my travels, even to this day. Many of the dyes, I know who they're coming from. I personally know the suppliers. So it was always the focus of that business and and through today is... Uh, natural fibers natural dyes Mm -hmm.
0: and what would you say sort of drew you to always being drawn to natural fibers and natural dyes
1: I I mean it's a crazy story but even as a kid um, my mother liked to sew and my mother actually as far as I can remember only sewed with natural fibers wools and cottons and silks and playing with those as a kid and next door to my mom's business was a, a home furnishing store and they would give me their old sample books and I could play with those. So it was the feel of the natural fiber versus you know, polyester or nylon or whatever. I just uh, really liked the feel of the fabrics and that has stayed with me to today. I mean, I, you know, when, I talk, when I teach natural dyeing and I just did a big, big, big custom dye job for someone, you have to understand and really know the fibers and you have to know how they're going to react in the dye pot and when to stop. How much can you push them? And I think that uh, there's nothing more beautiful than, you know, a, a, a natural fiber, a beautifully woven natural fiber, the way that it feels on your body, the way that it drapes, it moves. It's far different than a synthetic fabric.
0: And that's what yeah, attracts I, me to it,
1: is, is just the movement on your body.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I totally agree. I mean, there's definitely a particular beauty in natural fibers and the way natural dyes look. I noticed that you had a large variety of different dyes uh, on your site that are uh, different than dyes that I've heard of before. Can you talk about how you source some of those materials and um, maybe name a couple lesser known natural dyes that you offer?
1: Sure. I mean, I, I'm i always, you know, I do a lot of traveling, so I meet with dyers, I meet with suppliers, I talk with them. Uh, two years ago, I was in India for India Sutra in Kolkata, uh, teaching there, and I happened to meet um, uh, Michelle from Living Blue, an amazing NGO, and they produce blue gold, it's called. It's their beautiful, beautiful indigo. So by making a relationship with him, I now import his uh, indigo and I promote it it's very strongly because it's beautiful beautiful indigo and that's often ha- what will happen I, I'll meet a dyer and you know talk to them or I'll meet the supplier and talk to them and I get to know the person I'm buying the dyes from so I'm not just buying dyes to resell there's always a story behind the dyes whether it's my you know for me personally I need to know where they're coming from um, So that's one of the, you know, I think one of the more exciting dyes that I have at the moment is Living Blue's uh, Amazing Indigo. That's what's in my 55-gallon vat. Um, One of my other favorite dyes is is called Persian Berries. And the reason I like that is it was an old Silk Road dye. It was actually Mm -hmm. a dye that was used along the Silk Road. So for me, as someone who teaches in communities overseas... It's very important. I can't bring to that community dyes that they can't get. It makes no sense. So when I worked along the Silk Road, that was one of the dye extracts that I brought with me because they would be able to go out and actually find that dye in the wild. It's a dye that they could then get the berries and dry the berries and make the dye. So those are the kinds of things that I, I also
0: have. Yeah, yeah. Can you kind of talk about the relationships or the experiences that you've had with the various countries that you've traveled to and um, some of the dyes that you've been able to extract, extract, exploring those areas?
1: Sure. I mean, I think one of the, um, one of the more exciting ones that I got to do was I worked in Rwanda with a group of 10 genocide, genocide widows and what i did before and on any any trip i do this but what i did before the trip is i did a lot of research on what dye materials would be available in their area that they could simply easily go out and gather so um one of my best references was dominique cardone's book on natural dyes it was very very helpful and i did a lot of other other research on the dye stuff and then i put together a a huge book for them with photographs of the plant in its various stages, uh, descriptions of the plant. And then when, when I was in uh, Muzanze, I got to go out with a botanist so we could look at where could they find the plants, actually where could they go. And we logged various areas where we found the plants growing. So that was quite exciting. And once the women caught on to what I was doing every morning, they would greet me with flowers that they had picked along the way on their walk to uh, their workplace. And one of the things that they brought me, yeah, it was was every day I was like in tears because it was just beautiful. But um, they they brought a green leaf plant and they they didn't really know the name of it. They only knew that their great grandmother, their grandmother, their mother, they all used it to cure stomach aches. But Hmm. when the plant was cooked up, when the green leaves were cooked up, they gave a red color. They made the water red. So we actually worked with that and made a dye and dyed some of their yarn with that plant. To this day, I have no idea the name of it, but it gave beautiful, beautiful, beautiful color for them. So the beautiful, beautiful color for them.
0: Wow. (laughs) And so it's it's such a beautiful story. Thank you. Um, Thank you. It sounds like um, such a such an amazing time and such an amazing way to sort of become acquainted with natural dyes. You mm-hmm. know, I think that you know natural dyes have always been something that foster community and um, culture and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. When you're when you're searching or or when you're finding new dyes, like the one that you found when you were in Rwanda, are you using mordants and things to help? Fuse the dye to the fibers. Oh, absolutely, absolutely.
1: But you know, alum. When I worked in Mexico, they they, they get raw alum right out of the, the mountainsides. When you're buying, you know, it's a rock that you're you're grinding down. So, mm. the mordants are found everywhere, and it's you know, I know that there's a whole movement today, an anti mordant movement. But I honestly, very strongly believe, and I've been doing this for a very very long time, that you still need a mordant. And uh, I don't believe that alum is harmful. Certainly, we eat pickles, and pickles are made with alum. So, yes, I do work with mordants. But I don't work with um, what I classify as heavy metals. I don't work with chrome or tin. Um, I do work with iron, but very carefully. And, and when I, if I teach with iron, I'm, you know, I explain all the cautions that need to be taken and dedicated utensils because once iron gets on something, it's on there, and it can affect everything you're doing. So... But, yeah, I think mordants are very important. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm. And so you've also mentioned a bit about indigo dyeing and indigo vats. Can you talk about Mm -hmm. the origins of the indigo that you're using and also how you are inoculating your indigo vat?
1: What do you mean by inoculating my indigo vat? I don't give it any shots. (laughs) So (laughs) explain to me what you mean. No vaccines for my indigo vat. How am I building my indigo (laughs) vat? Yes,
0: yes. How you are creating the bacterial environment to ferment the indigo.
1: Okay. Well, at this moment, I have three different indigo vats going. I have an iron vat. I have what I call a chemical vat made with lye and thyorrhea dioxide. And I have my 55-gallon natural ferment vat. And that's made with a whole lot of indigo, cooked bran, ground matter root, soda ash, and water. And that's it. It's a very simple vat. It's a vat that um, my students, and in my, uh, when you know, I had my business in Brooklyn, used to describe the vat as a pet. They'd say, this is Linda's pet. Because it needed to be fed. It needed to be kept warm. It couldn't get cold. It couldn't get too hot. Um, you know, It needed to be minded. It needed to be stirred. It's a vat that you need to pay attention to. You can't just put the lid on it and walk away for a month and think it's going to behave properly so mm-hmm. that um th- and and i think that's what i like about it is that it's it's a living thing that needs care and if you respect the bat it's going to behave very beautifully for you so i just mm-hmm. did a, a custom job for someone where over four days i did 132 dips in that bat wow. and it's still very happy Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I know what I'm doing and I know how to respect the vat. And every morning I would test the vat to be sure, can I die with it today or does it need to rest for another day? You know? Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. And how long do natural vats uh, usually last? Well, um, the, the one I had in
1: Williamsburg, I couldn't move it, you know, so I had to dump it. But it was already five years old and still behaving beautifully. Um, I would probably feed it every year, year and a half, replenish the uh, the indigo, the matter, etc., but only to about a quarter of what originally went into it. Um, I have read that in Japan, they have vats that are 100 years old. They've been passed down from generation to generation to generation. So you can, with care, keep a bat going for a very long time as long as you, you know, feed it, keep it warm. <laughs> Don't let it freeze. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't realize that they they, they they don't understand that if, you know, even with a, you know, with a fructose bat, you can keep it going if you if you pay attention to it.
0: Um, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I recently spoke with another indigo dyer, and she was kind of pointing to the, the current indigo dyeing workshops and how there's a lot of people who are doing indigo vats and they're not really doing it, it's full justice because they're not taking their time to really build the vat over time, which is really what indigo, what indigo's best quality is. And so Mm -hmm. um, it is interesting that you are, you know, talking about the fact that you can kind of have this, you know, lifelong resource that can represent many things. I mean, as you mentioned in Japan, they pass it down through generations. It's something that can really put, like, natural textiles and slow fiber to task. Uh
1: Uh-huh.
0: Yep. I think
1: that, you know, also, I I, I think what that other dyer may be talking about, I think it's a Western mentality. We want everything yesterday. We want it really fast. Even, you know, people who want slow fiber and slow clothes, they still, if they're going to do some dyeing, they want it to be fast. It's not a fast process. And you have to practice patience and you have to practice giving things time and when I work with other cultures whether I'm in Mexico or in India they understand that the time is different for them
0: yeah yeah I I completely agree 100 percent so do you also grow your dye plant materials as well
1: I do. I grow, um, this year I'm growing three species of indigo, Persicaria tinctoria, the Japanese indigo, Indigophora tinctoria, and Indigophora sufruticosa. I'm also growing woad, and one of my favorite dye plants, it's called pericone, or Mexican marigold. It's a teeny tiny 1.5 centimeter flower in diameter that gives a very, very strong, beautiful yellow. It's used in Mexico. My main purpose of growing is a little bit different than I think other dyers. I'm really growing for the seeds. I sell the seeds and I sell the dried leaves for other people who might want to make their own indigo from the dried leaves. So I'm, I'm approaching this in a little bit of a different way. And also when I talk about indigo, I talk not only about it as a dye stuff, but I talk about it as a, a medicine as, uh, you know, a soothing agent that tea is made from the seeds and tea is made from the stalks. So I really, uh, the plant is used uh, in India still, it's, it's grown and it, it may not be being used as a dye, but it's used as an, a nitrogen rich, a soil enricher. They, they, you know, they mm-hmm. till it back into the soil to enrich the soil. So when I talk about indigo, I don't only talk about it as a as a dye. What I'm growing as a dye, but it, the overall value of this plant. So when we talk about sustainability, this is one of the most sustainable plants I think on the planet because there's so many uses for it.
0: Mm. Yeah, I I definitely agree, and you gave me some wonderful advice with um, growing my plants can you talk about the different varieties that you're growing and the different conditions that they require? Sure, well, um,
1: I'm one of those gardeners, if you don't make it in this condition with everybody else, you're out. Um, But (laughs) certainly my, you know what I mean? I don't have a greenhouse to baby them, but my, um, uh, when I lived in Greenville, it, it was the ideal growing conditions, heat and humidity, major heat, major humidity. Uh, up here on my hill in Roanoke, it's a little bit different. Uh, we still get about 90-degree days, not 100-degree days, and the humidity is much less. But the plants are all doing well. Um, I've harvested the persicaria for the first time and already dried the leaves, crushed and dried the leaves. I've noticed that um, the the road is doing really, really well. It's just going insane. It's almost time to harvest it. I have to wait a couple more weeks, and I'll harvest it. The... Sufruticosa and the tinctoria, the, the nights were a little cool for them. So they, did, they are growing a little bit more slowly than I expected. But again, they're all doing well. And each variety germinates at a different speed, uh, grows at a different speed. You know, by uh, November, the Sufruticosa should be about seven feet tall. It's mm. an amazing plant. And, and it will winter over. You know, if I protect the bed, it will winter over um and the mexican marigold the pericone is just beginning to flower so you know in about another month i'll be able to harvest that for color so they each you know have their own distinct growing speed uh growing height they like to be fed i feed my plants with a mixture of sea kelp emulsion and neem oil and eem neem oil and water and the neem oil in uh, india is used for many, many things, you know all kind of healing and to paint the brick walls and uh, you know put on your warps so it 's a very healing and good plant, and uh, it also gives nutrition to the indigo, as does this and, I, and I, I spray this on the leaves i don 't put it into the soil it 's foliar feeding mm-hmm. hmm. and i 'm always watching for signs of stress you know the the uh, here, the insects are a little bit different. I think right now, I don't know what we've got, it's some big giant flying thing. <laughs> if it's, it's not locusts, but it's maybe cicadas, I have no idea, you know, and I was like, Oh, are they going to eat the indigo? But indigo is a little bit bitter. So most uh, bugs don't like to eat it.
0: Mm. And so you're also an author, do you want to talk about some of the books that you've published? Sure.
1: I published a book with Pottercraft, and um, it's kind of sad because it was right before uh, sort of the natural dye thing took off. And so Pottercraft, even though I did a proposal for a book on natural dyes, uh, they told me that would never sell. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which I, yeah. So so it was a book on, uh, it's called The Yarn Lover's Guide to Hand Dyeing. And it's a, it's a book on um, mostly low-impact dyes, but I had a lot of fun. I had some leeway, so I did Kool-Aid dyeing with kids, and you get to see the kids dying with Kool-Aid. I uh, had a large enough uh, advance that I could fly around the country and even to Canada and interview dyers and tell their story, photograph them and tell their story. So I shot a third of the photographs. I had a a fashion photographer and a a still-life photographer for the other parts of the book, and I did sneak in one natural dyer which I always felt very good about doing. So it was, mm. it, it, but you know, it was kind of, it was really too bad because it was really on the cusp of when, you know, people started writing natural dye books and they, you know, began to, to really sell. My other three books, every, not every time, um, I've traveled to Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan at the invitation of the U.S. embassies there. They have a heritage program, or had, when they had the funding, a heritage program in every country where they try to support the country's heritage. And so I was brought in to um, for Kazakhstan uh, to help revive the knotted carpets that the women used to make and under the uh, Russian rule had not been allowed to do. And uh, in Turkmenistan, I was actually invited to participate uh, as a speaker at a huge international carpet conference. And then I gave workshops there as well. Um, so. Uh, that's when I, that was when I got paid. But usually when I travel, I have to raise the money. So I do crowdfunding. And one of the gifts for the crowdfunding for a, you know, a higher level donation is one of my books. So I photograph the people I work with. And the books are not about me at all. But they're really about the people that I work with, their stories, their work, their dreams, their desires, whatever they want to talk about. And that's what these little books are about. So it's a celebration of the culture, the people that I get to work with. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow, that sounds so so beautiful, so amazing! <laughs> I can only imagine the the types of textiles and dyes and things that you've seen. I mean, I I want your life. <laughs>
1: I just, I think I've been very, 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 very fortunate. It's not that I'm knocking on people's doors, but, um, you know, they find me and they invite me. And I think that's um, how I feel very, very fortunate. I'm not begging, please, 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 but they're knocking on my door and and saying, would you come and and work with us? And so some, you know, they're in impoverished areas and they don't have the money. And that's why they can't pay me. They can't pay my airfare. And that's why I have to do crowdfunding. But um, certainly, when you have experiences like this, I think it changes you as a person. It changes you as a human being. And I look at myself as a troubleshooter. And I go into these communities to either return to them a a, a craft that they've lost because crafts are disappearing through children leaving the villages, poverty, war, strife, for whatever reason. Um, And then I help them with entrepreneurship and design as well. And that's sort of, so that I feel that's my role in life
0: (laughs) that's amazing we'll definitely have to make sure that we put links in the website so that people can support your work and um, support you traveling and and creating these amazing um, books did you have any particular new projects that you were working on that you wanted to let our listeners know about
1: I do. I want to talk about um, next February 2020. I will be in Munar, Kerala, southern India, at Aranya Natural. And there is a link on my website to this event. I've worked with Aranya Natural since 2009. It's an amazing organization of specially abled youth. And 25 years ago, Ratna Krishna Kumar, the founder, had a dream of, that she could help these young, specially abled youth through natural dyes, and Iranian Natural Today is a worldwide, world-renowned organization, not only for their work with the specially-abled youth, but the beautiful, beautiful work their artisans do, and so they will be celebrating their 25th anniversary, and I have been invited to give two workshops there, and so I'm working right now uh, on getting ready for those workshops. And the first one is painting on fabric with natural dyes, uh, specifically with indigo, Myra Balin, and matter. And so I'm doing a lot of uh, experimentation and seeing how far can I push the dyes, how far can I push the fabric, and then, of course, writing instructions for everybody. And the second will be, this is really quite exciting, um, Aranya has a greenhouse and beautiful organic gardens and they are going to grow Japanese indigo for me so that I can teach mm. fresh leaf indigo dyeing with Japanese indigo in India, which is unheard of. No one's ever done this before. So um, I'm super <laughs> excited that they have the facility to grow the indigo, and then we will be offering this workshop. And again, I'm gonna talk about the indigo, not just for the dye, but the fact that this can be cultivated there, that uh, how they can grow it, how they can cut the plant, root the stalk, and double their crop if they want to, uh, you know, make tea. I'm going to bring my my uh, indigo tea with me, and we'll have tea in the workshop. <laughs> so it's very wow. exciting. So again, just to push it, that link is on my website, uh, the theyarntree.com, and you know, come to India in February.
0: Awesome! That sounds amazing.
1: <laughs> I know. I wish it was February today. <laughs>
0: I have to look into that. I'm very interested. I was looking at it's how do you pronounce it? Aranya? Aranya. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Aran yeah, I was I was looking at Aranya and it just everything looks amazing. So I will definitely keep that in my arsenal. Right.
1: I mean we you know, we always talk about Disneyland as being one of the happiest places on earth, but I think Aranya Natural is one of the happiest places on earth. Number one, their artisans are all so happy to be there. And uh, they Mm. start every day, you know, singing on the, the buses pick them up and they start the day by singing on the buses. And uh, it's nestled in a teat plantation. So the air is fresh and the water is perfect for dying, perfect for dying, because it comes down off the mountain. And so I think that's the happiest place on earth.
0: Wow, that sounds amazing. Uh, a natural dye is Disneyland. <laughs> <Exactly. Yeah. laughs> I didn't think about it that way. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so where on social media can people go to follow your work? Okay, you can find me, um,
1: mostly it's the, the Yarn Tree USA but there are also, again, links on my website. Uh, you can s- go to my blog, which is matterlane.com, m-a-d-d-e-r-l-a-n-e.com, matter like the dye. Um, I'm on Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, and Twitter. So it's you can you can certainly find me, and uh, definitely I'm always posting to Instagram. Every, you know what I'm doing that's new and uh, what's going on at my studio and in my garden and in my yard. Yeah. So that's where you can find
0: me. Great. So before you go, we mm-hmm. have one question that we ask everyone that comes on the podcast, and that is, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? I do. I th- I saw that
1: question um, from you, and and it and it's. I think it's something I I, it, I taught at my studio in Brooklyn, and I still believe today is that don't give up. If it doesn't work the first time, keep trying. Don't worry about making mistakes because mistakes are the best journey you can go on because it becomes a journey of discovery. You know, I think the biggest mistake we make, and again, I think it's kind of a Western thing, is that we set up with this one idea in our head and we're going to do that idea and we're very strict about it. And then when it doesn't work, we're very disappointed and often we stop. But if you open your mind to the fact that it's okay to make mistakes, mistakes can be really beautiful and they can force you to do something that you might not have done. It's the best experience ever. I mean, I think that some of the you know, mistakes that I've made have led to some of the most beautiful designs I've ever made. So that's, that's my advice. Never give up. Open yourself up to whatever can come your way. Open yourself up to mistakes and enjoy the journey.
0: Wow. That is amazing advice. Thank you so much for that.
1: Oh, you're welcome. It's, it's, I follow it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And also thank you again for joining the podcast. It's been a wonderful conversation.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for having me on today.
0: That's a wrap. If you're interested in finding out ways to support Linda's work, as well as to attend her workshops, you can find links to her website in our show notes at www.jisyarn.com episode dash 72. Next week on the podcast, Sarah will be talking to Liz Gibson, the founder of Yarn Worker and rigid heddle teacher extraordinaire. They'll be talking about new projects Liz has been working on, including her new collaboration with Just Yarn. Weaver's Playbox Number 2, which will launch in August. So stay tuned for that episode. Until next time, happy weaving!